SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC, and you can follow him at CJ O'Gara. Connor, I'm afraid that rivalry week is still a ways away. So for now, we're sort of stuck with what I always call cupcake week. Not a lot of great matchups to break down this coming Saturday. Does that mean we get cupcakes too? This close to Christmas, you really want to spoil your appetite for that? That's a good point. That's a good point. We'll, we'll hold off on the cupcakes. We'll let SEC teams take care of that. If you're listening to this podcast, then you know the South loves football. And you know what the South also loves? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, home of the classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year, and they are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you enjoyed in college way after midnight. It is still only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. But best of all, Crystal is taking care of our Saturday Down South fans this fall. Text SDS, the letters SDS, to 37793. 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals and a drink. Free crystals, 79-cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the king that you are. Stop by your local crystal today. All right, Connor, the other shoe has finally dropped on Rocky Top. Butch Jones is out at Tennessee. I guess the most obvious question is, what in the Sam Hill took so long? That was my question throughout this whole process was, why is this going on the way that it has? Why are we uh, sitting here assuming that this is this inevitable thing is going to happen and it's just it's simply not happening. I mean, the opportunities were there week after week, and at the same time, you know, recruits are committing, decommitting left and right, and we're left wondering, what is John Curry thinking? Like, why why are you not making this move? Jim McElwain gets fired, of course, and everybody expects Tennessee to sort of follow suit. Did Florida steal Tennessee's thunder? <laughs> I mean, I really don't know, but, you know, this was going to happen no matter what. I don't think anybody who watched that, 41 to nothing game against Georgia sat there and thought that Butch Jones was the guy. I think even back then we knew that this was only, this was going to happen in 2017. The rest, the way that it played out, the way that it did just sort of expedited this process. And, you know, there were a lot of people that thought that this move wasn't going to happen until the end of the season, you know, as, as recently as last week. But, you know, this move was the right move, obviously. And Tennessee really had no choice to make at this point had to go in a new direction and had to had to realize that they need to get the ball rolling on this thing because there are other big-time programs that are going to be looking for some coaches, and they need to do whatever they can to try and get out ahead of the curve. Florida's already been able to do that, and there's been rumors about Chip Kelly and whether or not that's true. You know, that's yet to be determined. But um, a move that had, to be made, had, that had to be made in the long run, but just surprised that it didn't come this sooner. Yeah, you used the right word with inevitable, and this was basically the writing on the wall. Week five was that Georgia game, 41 to nothing, in your house, by the way. And that was when you were like, okay, this is clearly going to happen. Look at the separation between these two programs. It's year five for Coach Jones, only year two for Coach Smart. And look where we are, 41 to nothing at Neyland Stadium. But even after that, you had the South Carolina loss and then getting obliterated at Alabama, you lose at Kentucky, you squeak one out against Southern Miss, you walk off the field like you're champions of life again, beating Southern Miss on homecoming, and then you get destroyed at Mizzou. So the the program became sort of a national laughingstock in the last four, five, maybe six weeks because this really snowballed and got completely out of control because Coach Jones is still acting like Coach Jones. Jo- John Curry is sitting there just sort of twiddling his thumbs, waiting for who knows what. You know, I sort of made the argument a while ago when this started to get out of hand that firing Coach Jones didn't make a lot of sense. You needed to ride it out and then make the move as quickly as you can at the end of the season. I think I've some kind of come to change my mind on that simply because 
We weren't sure how this was going to work out with the new early signing period. I was thinking there might be a glimmer of hope to hold on to some of those four- and five-star kids that were committed for 2018. But as you said, that clearly didn't happen. This was the number six recruiting class in the country as recently as a month ago. It is now number 14. It's going to fall much further than that. The top player in the state of Tennessee, a five-star offensive lineman, he recently decommitted. Oh, by the way, he's a volunteer's legacy, and he went to high school in Knoxville. The number two player in the state of Tennessee, a four-star wide receiver, he just decommitted. So holding on to Jones and thinking you were going to keep these kids in-house, that wasn't going to happen. The move needed to be made. But, of course, the question going forward is, who are you going to get to replace them? But more importantly than that, before we get to the actual coaching search, Connor, you tell me, is this the kind of job, is this the kind of situation now where a good coach can go in there and turn this program around right away in a year or two, or is this another four- or five-year brick-by-brick full-on rebuilding project? Nice with the brick-by-brick. Brick. That's that's pretty good. We worked that in there. The least I can do. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, why can't you go in there and win in one and two years? I mean, this is Tennessee. This isn't something where you're going to be looking at a situation like Ole Miss has right now. This is a program that gets – 100,000 people show up on a given Saturday, has abundant resources, has, you know, the, the facilities to, to compete with, you know, the, the big-time programs. Why not turn this thing around in a year or two? This doesn't have to be a four- or five-year deal. And I know that there are a lot of Tennessee fans right now scratching their heads thinking, that roster right now is not competing in the SEC East anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. But, you know, at the same time, you look at a team like what, what Georgia's been able to do, and I, I know I keep using that example, but Georgia was a pretty mediocre team last year. I mean, this was not a group that you know people had high expectations for because of the amount of talent that came back. But at the same time, it's not like this is an entirely revamped roster that Kirby Smart is doing this with. And I think that that's kind of the model now for these programs like Florida, like Tennessee, that have these big-time resources that want to be able to say, yeah, we can, we can compete in a hurry. Coaching is such a... You know, the reason that ADs has such a quick trigger in this day and age is because they see the impact that coaching has on their program and how quickly it can turn things around. And if you get the right guy in there, I mean, there's no telling what you can do. So I, I totally buy into the belief that Tennessee can be back in a couple of years and competing at the level that, that it wants to. Now, is that going to be easy? Are there going to be a lot of deep commitments? Is there going to be a bit of an identity crisis? Perhaps. But this is what you have to go through. This is the risk that the risk that you need to be willing to take in order to say this isn't working out and we need to find somebody to make sure that it does work out. That's the challenge right now for John Curry is getting a guy in there who's going to be able to uh, sort of right all the wrongs that Butch Jones did throughout his time in, in Knoxville and say we're going to do things differently this way, this way, and this way. And it can't just be all about recruiting. You know, this, this on-the-field stuff is pretty important too. And for all the made-up awards and all that stuff, you just got to be able to win games, and this is that's what this comes down to. So, yeah, I mean, I, I buy Tennessee's chances of being able to win some games. You know, this is a team that won nine games back-to-back seasons coming into this year. What's to say that that can't happen again, and then maybe they can even build off that? Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page here. I believe a good coach can come in there and, if not win right away, by year two have an opportunity to be competitive in the East again. You have to give Coach Jones a little bit of credit. I know the Knoxville types don't want to do that right now, but the program five years later is a heck of a lot better than it was when he got there in 2012. He inherited not only a complete mess of a situation on the field, but off the field as well. One thing Coach Jones had to do was completely revamp this football team academically because their scores in the classroom were terrible and they were in big trouble with the NCAA. Now, these are the types of things where if you go, if you only win five games, if you have good academic marks, you're doing good things in the classroom, i.e. Mississippi State a year ago. I'm sorry, E.G., not I.E., grammar mistake by me. Anyway, you can still get a chance to go to a bowl game. Tennessee's academics were a complete mess before Jones got there, and he straightened that out, and academically, this is a much better program now. Is that important? Do volunteer fans care about that on Saturday? Not really, but when you want to fix the football program, that is a component. Also, this is a more talented football team. Is it as talented as it needs to be? Is it as talented as the programs at Florida and Georgia? Probably not. 
but it's better than four or five years ago. Remember, we had back-to-back years where Tennessee didn't have a single player drafted in the NFL, which is preposterous. I mean, Georgia State gets guys drafted every year. Tennessee can't put guys in the NFL in the draft. That's how bad the talent was. So Coach Jones can recruit. He has upgraded the the level of talent there. So the next coach who comes in has a lot more to work with. So you have to give Jones credit on that front, which is why I agree with you. I think the good coach can come in and have some degree of immediate success. Of course, that begs the question, who's that going to be, which is where the conversation has to go next. We know that Rocky Top is going to shoot for the moon. They're going to open up the coffers, write the biggest check they can. I think John Curry is under a lot of pressure to sign a big name at a big figure, but you can want the best guy in the room all you want. You got to get him to say yes. And this program hasn't been able to do that the last couple of times it's been looking for a coach. The question is, who is that big name? And is it a big name that's necessarily going to turn things around? I think there are a lot of different directions that you can go with this job. And you can say, okay, we want to get a guy who's going to turn around the national perception of this program. Because right now, Tennessee needs it. But at the same time, you can't get a guy who's just going to come in there and just try and sell history and assume that that's going to take care of itself. You know, reality is these these recruits in in today's day and age do not know a Tennessee team that was competing for national championships. And that's important, and that's why, you know, it's taken longer for programs like Tennessee and Michigan and and Nebraska to to rebuild themselves when, you know, they, they, they can preach all this stuff about history all they want, but... You know, until you just get the right guy in there, it, it, you, you can't make that happen overnight. It's just there's there's more competition, and it's just times have changed. So, you know, I, I totally agree that that whoever comes into Tennessee has has some you know some and that there's some big time pressure on John Curry to come in and hire a big name. But I don't think it's the end of the world if he doesn't. If he decides that you know what the Group of Five route is not that bad of a route. I think that we can get a guy in here who's going to come in and be able to do the X's and O's. I think he's going to be able to recruit. And I think that he's going to check all the boxes that we need except the big name box. I think he's going to be okay with that. Now, of course, Tennessee's going to shoot for the moon because it's Tennessee. And that's that's just what they do, and that's what most programs with big-time resources do. Who knows how much money they're going to flash at the John Gruden's and the, you know, the Dan Mullins of the world or, or whoever. But this is a job that you just need to be able to win games. And I think the guy who is able to come in and do the things on the X's and O's side and do what Bush Jones couldn't, is going to ultimately have the more you know successful tenure, and that's going to mean more to these fans than just coming in here and talking about a bunch of history and you know, and just coming in there and, and selling tickets. That's not what this thing is about. Tennessee's going to sell tickets. It's just a matter of being able to be competitive right now, and that, that's what this program is So there's a lot of big names out there. John Gruden, of course, is at the top of the list, but we've also heard Chip Kelly. We've heard Dan Mullen, as you mentioned. We've heard Mike Gundy, the latest name thrown in there. Pardon me for chuckling, but Jimbo Fisher from Florida State has been thrown out there. Do you give any of those guys an opportunity to truly say yes to this job? I find it incredible that John Gruden is actually the gambling favorite here. I find it even more incredible that you can gamble on these things, but degenerates never cease to amaze me. But John Gruden is the betting favorite. Chip Kelly, always a sexy name. Dan Mullen, look what he's done at Hale State. Mike Gundy, we know the situation at Oklahoma State is always a little tenuous with the administration and big Mr. Pickett. Jimbo Fisher, eh, don't get me started. Any of those, those are the big, splashy, sexy names. Those are the guys who are going to command five and six years contracts, six or seven mil a year. Do any of those guys actually say yes to this thing? I don't think so. I think if there's a chance that one of them does, I actually think it could be Mike Gundy. And that's that's the one that I know that gets thrown out around every year. And Gundy rumors have sort of become like groomers in a way, where he keeps surfacing for all these big-name jobs, but he's still at the same job. And he's a guy, he's an Oklahoma State guy, and everybody just assumes, a lot of people assume that, uh, he's he's going to want to stick it out there, and he's going to want to do whatever he can to build that program into a yearly national title contender. And to a certain extent, he's done that. But you just don't know what those relationships are like behind closed doors. And the rumors about um, you know the, the the back and forth that he's had with administration is the reason that these rumors have started up about him possibly being a candidate. So I could see if if, if 
if those relationships have just gone stale, Tennessee throws, you know, five, six million dollars at him, whatever it takes, that it just decides, you know what, he's the guy that we want to come in here. We can we can have him run his high powered offense. He can do some big twelve like things in the SEC perhaps. Um, maybe even look a little bit like a Missouri and just come in here and just try and light up the scoreboard. I think Tennessee fans, the sound of that right now would be tremendous. I mean, you know, he's got the big personality now, of course, with the mullet, which has a personality of its own. And I think he would really check all of those boxes. I still don't think there's a strong possibility of that happening. But of those big names that you just mentioned, he's the guy that I would see being maybe the most likely. Yeah, he might be the most likely. That doesn't make him likely. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It right. seems like to me if that ever got close, a guy like T. Boone Pickens and how deep his pockets are, he would find a way to get involved. I know that he and Gundy have clashed here and there, but you can't deny the fact that he's made that program much more nationally relevant than it's been the last couple of decades. So who is the guy? I know who I think Tennessee should target. What you don't want is to have to hire your third or fourth choice, which is what the Vols have been forced to do with Butch Jones and which with Derek Dooley before him. Remember Lane Kiffin. I know he's a big name now and everyone loves Lane Kiffin, but when he got that job, a lot of people were scratching their heads. He was still very young. He had a ridiculous flame out with the Raiders and Al Davis. It's not like he was the hot property out on the open market. I think you got to go get Mike Norvell from Mex- from Memphis. It makes all the sense in the world. He's a young guy. He's an up-and-coming guy. He's an offensive guy. He's had success at a place like Memphis. Historically, has not been a program. And I see something similar to Justin Fuente. Remember, Fuente had all kinds of success at Memphis. He flipped that to a job with Virginia Tech. And so far, Virginia Tech looks like it made the right choice. Frank Beamer was there forever. Tough to make a hire beyond him, but it seems like Fuente was a very good hire, and this program is in very good hands. Norvell seems like the way to go for me. As you said, group of five guy. He's had a track record of success. Memphis is 8-1 and one this year, won eight games last year, taking over for Coach Fuente. They're not going to get a lot of four- and five-star talent. We know that, so clearly he's coaching his kids up. That's the type of guy I think Tennessee can not only target, but land. You don't want to put all your eggs into the Gruden or the Kelly or the Mullen or the Gundy basket and come up empty one, two, three times. That gets embarrassing. Target a guy like Norvell, who's probably going to say yes. That makes a lot of sense. And who's the, so Memphis is eight and one in a year. Who's the one team that Memphis lost to? I'll I have, on the spot. I have not Amen. memorized Memphis's schedule, but please tell me. <laughs> UCF, Scott Frost. Ah. I'm just saying. Yeah, it all comes back to Scott Frost. Of course. You, know this. you should have been able to guess that just with, from context clues, of course. I should That's have. the guy Tennessee should target. That, that, that's the, for me, that's the name that they should target. Now, whether or not they'd be able to get him because Florida or Nebraska makes more sense for him, that's a different subject. But if I'm Tennessee, he is at the top of my list. He is the guy that I would go all in to get because I do think that he is going to succeed at a big program next year. Now, having said that, I think the more realistic candidate is Justin Puente. For all the aforementioned reasons you talked about with Mike Novell, I mean, Justin Puente is just kind of already ahead of that learn. It's already ahead of that curve on that. I mean, he's already at a bigger program at Virginia Tech, and he's already doing good things there. So why not just try and go and get him? That's what Tennessee fans would say. Why try and go and get the Memphis guy when you can get the guy before him who did those similar things? So, for me, I think Fuente is a guy that um, just people know that he's going to be at an even bigger job, I think, in the next few years. Uh, a young guy with a lot of energy who's just had an, a tremendous track record building up that Memphis program and then getting Virginia Tech to the level that it wants to be at. Uh, I think this is a guy who makes a lot of sense in that area. Um, I think that he is going to succeed no matter what. I just think it's a matter of whether or not Tennessee is going to be able to pry him away uh, from Virginia Tech. But for me, he's the guy that uh, we talk about boxes. Maybe he's not quite the big name. He should be for college football fans at this point. But I think he would check a lot of those boxes that John Curry would be looking for. Yeah, I think he would be a very good hire. I honestly didn't consider Fuente much because it feels like he already made his big jump going from Memphis to Virginia Tech. Now, is Tennessee a bigger job than Virginia Tech? Yes, it is. Is it appreciably better? Not necessarily, but it's absolutely a better job. I just think it's going to be it's going to be difficult to pull him out of there. You probably could do it, 
But again, I don't want Tennessee to be in the situation where it's been the last couple of coaching searches, having to go down to that third or fourth guy because you strike out right. once or twice. If you try to get Frost, you might lose him to Florida. If you try to get Fuente, maybe he's happy where he is. If you try to get Gruden out of the booth, I don't know. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I think he likes to be danced with. I don't think he'll ever say yes to another job. That's just my opinion. I like the Fuente idea. I don't know how feasible it is. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, that, that's the thing that, we, that we're all interested to see is, is how much is Tennessee willing to spend on this? How much are they willing to fork, fork out for a buyout potentially if there is a guy like Fuente who, you know, they would really need to pry him out of Virginia Tech um, it just depends. It really depends on what their list looks like right now and what they're going to be able to uh, at least sit down and interview with. I mean, I, I, I've said from the beginning, I think Tennessee's list of candidates is long and all over the place. I think that they have potential NFL guys in mind. I think they have guys who have NFL and college experience. I think they have guys who are current big-time Power 5 coaches in mind. I think that they, they just – I don't think that they're zeroed in on any one type of candidate. I think that they should be – a little bit all over the map because he's kind of gone in those different directions. And I know there are a lot of Tennessee fans that do not want to see a group of five coach, but I think for the reasons that you mentioned before, passing over a guy like Mike Norvell wouldn't make much sense. And there are a ton of tremendous group of five candidates that I think would be uh, awesome, awesome fits at Tennessee. The question is whether or not they're going to be able to uh, rise to the top of that list because Tennessee is, Tennessee and the prestige that comes with that says that you have to go out and get a big name, but you just got to get the right name. That's what we keep coming back to. One thing you may have to consider, though, you know who was a really good group of five candidate five years ago? Butch Jones. The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. College football is here, and while the schedule is a little light this week, next week is when all the rivalry games are on display Old Miss, Mississippi State, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State, and, of course, the Iron Bowl, Alabama, Auburn. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business, having served over a million and a half customers, and they've been the place to go for almost three decades now. But best of all, right now, Ticket City is offering $20 off for all Saturday Down South fans. All you need to do is go to TicketCity.com, enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout, and you're going to get $20 off the game of your choice. Again, that's TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, visit Ticket City today. Connor, let's go ahead and spin the conversations forward. we got sort of a three-headed monster in the SEC right now. Alabama, Auburn, and Georgia, all three still have hopes alive for the college football playoff. Now, things got very interesting in Week 11 with Auburn absolutely throttling Georgia at Jordan-Hare, Alabama having some trouble and needing a last-minute touchdown drive to move past Mississippi State. We presume the Crimson Tide will be number one in the next era of the rankings. Auburn's going to move up. Georgia's going to move down. I think they're all alive. How do you see that trio right now with two weeks left in the regular season? I see that trio as incredibly interesting. I mean, right now, the fact that you have an SEC that's down to a three-team race, and it actually feels like a three-team race. I know Georgia might not be the trendy you know, pick right now to win the conference, but let's not forget that they were the number one team in the country at this time last week. So you're talking about a three-team race that looks legitimate. I mean, this is rare for the SEC. I mean, how many years have we been looking at this situation thinking, ah, it's just Alabama and Alabama's going to face, you know, Florida and the SEC, SEC championship or Alabama's just going to face, you know, Mizzou or, or whatever. And, and you're just kind of left sitting there like, all right, well, Alabama's going to win the SEC championship. But now, I mean, goodness, this is, this is tremendous. I think from a, from an entertainment standpoint, this is everything the SEC could have hoped for, to have an actual legitimate SEC contender in the East and have one in the West competing with Alabama is, is going to be great theater, I think. Um, the way that this past weekend unfolded just sort of stirred the pot even more. I mean, I think if Georgia wins, if, you know, if Georgia wins that game, obviously you know, the conversation about Auburn is over. We're just talking about how great the Georgia-Alabama showdown is going to be. But now we're talking about two games that have – 
monumental implications for the playoff picture, I think. And, you know, we'll get into it in a little bit with Auburn's playoff chances and whether or not there's, you know, life to be had there. But um, I, I think just from from an entertainment standpoint, what you have going on with these three teams is, is special. And I think in, in years in which the SEC has been boring, um, this just sort of changes the narrative with all that. Yeah, this is actually a couple of the topics I wrote about with our preseason prognostications back in August, probably. I said that that the West needs to come down to the Iron Bowl. That's That would be the best thing for that division is for that game on Thanksgiving weekend to be for all the marbles in the West. And thankfully, just as a fan of this sport, it will be. That is a winner-take-all game. What you really didn't hope for is for Alabama to be undefeated yet again in the conference. But by the time Auburn gets a chance to play them at home, you know, the Tigers have already lost two or three games, so the the end result doesn't really matter. It's just about bowl positioning for Auburn. But that's not the case. So that is a gift for SEC fans. On, and on top of that, I said that while the East doesn't need to keep pace with the West, you have to have one contender out of the East to at least make the SEC championship game interesting. And despite the fact that the Bulldogs played very poorly this past Saturday on the Plains, you and I are still big believers in this football team. I think they had a get-out-of-jail-free card. They could survive one loss and still have a chance to go to the playoff. So the Iron Bowl will be a lot more interesting than it's been the last year or two. And the SEC title game is going to be a lot more interesting than it's been maybe the last four or five years. But where you and I disagree a little bit is, number one, the playoff chances for a two-loss Auburn. And number two, the opportunity for the SEC to get two teams in the playoff. I think both of those, those scenarios are still very much alive. What say you? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get the, the disagreement train rolling here. I I don't think Auburn has as good of chances as everybody is saying, even if Auburn wins out. Now, you know, the, the, the possibility of this happening is still dependent on Alabama losing its first regular season game since the beginning of the 2015 season, which doesn't seem to be talked about, especially after the way Auburn played last week. Auburn absolutely looks the part. But in terms of their, their playoff chances is a two-loss team, I think a lot of people are discounting some of the obvious that you would still be looking at, you know, so the obvious is that Auburn is, would, would try to be the first two-loss two team to get into the field. We saw how that went for Penn State last year. And I understand, I understand Penn State did not play potentially number, the number one team in the country, beat the number one team in the country, and then, oh, by the way, you know, beat a, a top 10 team that, which is probably with, you know, Georgia would probably be in the top six, top seven um, in the SEC championship. They did not necessarily rack up those three wins in the last, you know, month of the season. I get all of that. But there are other hurdles that Auburn is working against here. The fact that, you know, up until last week, we were pretty convinced that Auburn was the third best team in this conference. And, you know, the fact is, Auburn still has those two losses. And, the, the selection committee makes, has made this about undefeated teams and one-loss teams and the criteria that's used to differentiate between one another. So I look at a situation in which Auburn was not, not able to get that big non-conference win, which nobody's talking about. And that's, that's what I, you know, I wrote today, and that things I think we'll see in the playoffs tonight was a little preview of what I expect, um, what I expect Auburn to be, where I expect Auburn to be at is number six. But at the same time, the selection committee has probably had long conversations about what Auburn didn't do in non-conference play, and that was get a quality win. They lost to Clemson. That was their big opportunity. There has only been one playoff team in the past in this three-year era that has made the field without a marquee non-conference win, and that was Ohio State in 2014. We all know how debated that team was because it lost to Virginia Tech and because it, it basically had to dominate the rest of its schedule just to get in. Now, of course, not all situations are similar. It depends on the field around Auburn. But I'm looking at an Alabama team that's 11-1, and and I'm thinking to myself, man, all that team did was lose to a top-10 team on the road. Alabama's in. So, for me, that's what I keep coming back to. I'm not as high on the two-team the, the two bid. We can get into that later. But I, I'm very interested to hear the argument for Auburn because I know where you're going with this, but I, I, I do think that you know those points need to be considered as well. I can actually make a very sound case for Auburn, even if they don't necessarily get chaos in front of them. 
And it's it, now the most difficult hurdle they have to jump here is beating Alabama. And as you said, they haven't lost a regular season game in quite some time. Just doing that is going to be incredibly difficult. And if you can't pull that off, the rest of this argument doesn't matter. But again, I don't think the Tigers need that much chaos in front of them. If they pull off this triumvirate of victories, Georgia at home, Alabama at home, Georgia a second time in Atlanta for the SEC title, that is one seriously impressive 11-2 and resume. And you're right, a two-loss team has not made the playoff before. However, the SEC representative, the SEC champion, has never had two losses in the three years we've had this format. So that is an extra monkey wrench that the committee is going to have to consider. But even with the other conferences, let's go ahead and say that Oklahoma runs the table and looks incredibly impressive. 12-1 and Sooners. Okay, put them in. Let's say that Whiskey runs the table. Wisconsin 13 and 0 takes care of the West and beats whomever shows up in the East and wins the Big 10. Go ahead and put the Badgers in. That's fine. And then let's say that Miami and Clemson in the ACC title game is basically an eliminator. 13 and 0 Miami is going to go. 12 and 1 Clemson is going to go. The loser is out, no question about that. There's your four teams right there because Notre Dame fell apart. That's two losses, no conference championship game, so they don't get that. I hate the phrase. They don't get the extra data point. And the Pac-12 is a mess. It doesn't matter who wins the Pac-12. The champion is going to have at least two losses, and the SEC is just considered to have more gravitas nationally than the Pac-12. Plus, it doesn't matter who wins the Pac-12, be it Washington, USC, whomever, they're going to have more stains on their resume than Auburn will, and they won't have as many quality wins as the Tigers will. So I don't think there needs to be that much chaos. Let Wisconsin win out. Let Miami win out. Let Oklahoma win out. If the Tigers win these three games and they're championed in Atlanta, they're going to the playoff. I yeah, I just I come back to the to the belief that I think Alabama gets in over So hold over whoa, 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 hold, hold, hold. before you get off the rails there, you're telling me that Auburn's gonna beat Georgia at home, beat Alabama at home, beat Georgia a second time in Atlanta to get that again data point, the thirteenth data point. You're telling me that the committee is gonna bring in eleven and one Alabama versus eleven and two Auburn having just beaten the Crimson Tide. That's what you're telling me the committee's going to do. I'm basing this off, a lot of this off of what they did last year with Penn State and Ohio State. Penn State had the head-to-head advantage. Okay, they had the same head-to-head advantage. They had two losses. The committee does not want to say, just wipe away the first month of the season, wipe away the first month and a half. We need to make this, this I'm, I'm, I'm not basing this off my personal opinion, my entire goal of this, of this thing is to try and get inside the mind of the selection committee and try and base what I think on what they will do. So if you're looking at a situation in which Auburn was a two-loss team for half of the season, then, then, why, then why, why, pay attention to the entire, why pay attention to the entire season if you're just going to put all the value in the last six weeks? If that was the case, Penn State would have been in last year. If that was the case, USC would have been in last year. They wouldn't have been playing in the Rose Bowl. Instead, they would have been playing in a semifinal. The selection committee wants to take the whole body of work into consideration. I do not believe this is a situation in which they want to say, hey, you know what, if you play nobody in non-conference play or if you lose that game, eh, don't worry about it. We're just going to put you in anyways. They value non-conference play so much more, I think, than people even realize because it makes their job easier. They are able to see how a team stacks up against other conference teams, and they don't have to – against a non-conference team. They don't have to sit there and say, well, do they just know Alabama really well or how good is the SEC really? If they see them perform well in non-conference play, it's a different scenario. But they, they lost to Clemson. And that's, that, that loss right now is, is the biggest thing holding them back, obviously. And in my opinion, it's something that's going to be talked about at length with the selection committee. And this is not an Auburn team that was exactly dominant in the first part of the year. I mean, they had, they had their fair share of struggles. Let's Let's not forget coming in the last weekend, we're talking about if Seth Malzahn's going to be able to save his job. I mean, all of a sudden we're, we're going to just assume that this team is going to be able to put together three nice wins and get to, and get to a playoff. I just don't necessarily buy that this is a, an open and shut case the way that the 538s of the world have projected a 91% chance and all that stuff. I just think there are other factors to take into consideration that the 
selection committee is going to value greatly, and I think they will kind of go back to some of the logic that they used to determine Penn State and Ohio State last year. Those are all very fair points. Very well put out there. Makes a lot of sense. But there's actually one part of that conversation that I think you're dismissing. Before we get to that, number one, yes, they didn't get the big out-of-conference victory. That being said, losing at Clemson, the defending national champion in week two, not exactly a stain on the resume. There's nothing to be ashamed about losing to that ball club. So I think there's, again, a little bit of a, I used the phrase earlier, a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card there. But here's the part of your argument that you haven't considered that I actually think helps Auburn. Yes, Ohio State got in last year as a one-loss team ahead of a Penn State team that went on to win the Big Ten, despite the Nittany Lions taking out the Buckeyes last year. However, remember what happened. Ohio State got to the Final Four and was destroyed by Clemson. Shut out, I believe. It was a complete embarrassment of a performance. So not only could you make an argument that they never should have been there in the first place, but when they did get there, they laid down and died and proved that they shouldn't have been there. And all of a sudden, there's people in that committee room saying, you know what? Maybe we should have been. Maybe it should have been Penn State. Yes, they had two losses. Yes, they had the head-to-head. You know, maybe we should have put them in instead. Maybe we need to put more value on winning that Big Ten title. So I think what happened last year actually helps Auburn because the last thing you want is to send in an Alabama team that doesn't deserve to be there. It's 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 just, very rarely do we say that, of course, that Alabama doesn't deserve it. But I think the Penn State-Ohio State dichotomy from last year actually helps Auburn's case because Ohio State went into that Final Four game and completely laid an egg. That's an interesting point, and that's perfectly valid. I, I get that. I mean, the selection committee is this is an evolving process, and they are learning new things year in, year out with this. But I think that they're becoming a bit more firm with their with some of their guidelines and and the way that they go about this process. Having said that, you really think that they're going to sit there and say, you know what? If we put Alabama in there, I think we're we're, we're rolling the dice on whether on on Alabama possibly getting blown out in a semifinal game. You think they're going to really? Do you think they're actually going to consider the possibility of putting Alabama in the field and risking Nick Saban's team getting crushed at a, on a neutral site? I, I don't. I, I don't see that as a as a thought at all. Ohio State last year, you could see the chinks in the armor. If you watch that team throughout the entire season, they struggled with some very mediocre Big Ten teams. You could go back and pick out the fact that Ohio State really wasn't dominant against teams that they should have been dominant against. Alabama's been dominant throughout most of the year. Yeah, they haven't necessarily rolled the past couple weeks. Those were against top 25 teams. This isn't an Alabama team that struggled in the same way Ohio State did to distance itself. Alabama has looked the part. Has the schedule worked out for Alabama to pick up those big-time quality wins? No, because your Florida State Seminoles did not feel like showing up the rest of the season after their starting quarterback went down. Enough already. Different discussion for a different time. <laughs> but, the problem, but the reality is the committee is not going to think for a second we're going to worry about Alabama getting in as a one-loss team, as a non-conference champ, and risking the possibility of them getting blown out. I don't think that that's going to come into their mind. It's a different program. Maybe any other program in that spot. Okay, that's fair. But I don't think they're worried about Alabama. Yeah, I don't think that was quite what I was saying. I don't think there's worry in that committee room that Alabama wouldn't deserve to be there and not put on a solid performance. I think it's more about what the committee values. And maybe there's more of a commitment to value the conference champions and who wins those games the first weekend in December. Now, is this Alabama team on paper and otherwise probably a heck of a lot better than last year's Ohio State? Yes, for 100 reasons that we can't all name here. But again, what the committee seems to be valuing, I think there's evidence to suggest that maybe they got last year wrong a little bit. Penn State probably should have been the choice over Ohio State. That was confirmed by the on-field product a couple of weeks later. I think Auburn's in. Granted, they have to go through an absolute death march to get there. But I'm on board with the 538 folks. I don't always say that. But I think Auburn will be in given that scenario. So last thing we need to talk about before wrapping up the podcast today, Connor, Let's start about some individual conversation, get away from the team stuff. We're still a couple weeks away from having to cast our ballots, but let's look at the potential postseason awards here in the SEC. Five of them I want to discuss. The Offensive Player of the Year, the Defensive Player of the Year, the Special Teams Player of the Year, Coach of the Year, as well as the Freshman of the Year. 
So let's begin with Offensive Player of the Year. Jalen Hurts won it last year as a true freshman. Is there any argument to be made for anybody outside of Hurts? If I'm voting today, he gets it again for me. He gets it again for me, too. The only guy that I think even factors in in this conversation at this point is on Johnson. I mean, the, the, the body of work that he's put together for this Auburn team has just been tremendous. And it's the biggest game of the year. He was a beast. I made the Le'Veon Bell comparison over the weekend. I was the very first person to do that, of course. Nobody else has ever made that comparison. Nobody. Ever while watching Kerry Hunt Johnson. Nobody. Um, so I'll trademark that. Um, but, I mean, how can you not buy into what he's been able to do for the Tigers this year? Just seems like week in, week out, he is just understanding his role in this offense that much better. And everybody talked about Cameron Pedway coming into the season, and it's been Kerry on Johnson's show. This is a one headed monster and I think that he deserves consideration having said that this is still Jalen Hurts award to lose at this point um, we saw at Mississippi or, yeah at Mississippi State this past weekend why this kid is just a tremendous above and beyond leader the guy that you want under center when the game is on the line that's an Alabama team that I think with maybe any other quarterback in the country in that spot uh, I, I'm not sure if they win that game uh, but his composure, his ability to do it with his arm, with his legs, is just something that we, we rarely see in this sport. Uh, just a guy who seems to get it. And and the numbers aren't necessarily going to be gaudy, and I think that we have a tendency to kind of just reward the numbers. But I think with Hurts, it's just such a bigger picture and what he's able to do uh, to, to just put his team in position to win. He is, he, he, there's no offensive player in the SEC, in my opinion, that does a better job putting his team in position to win. This is Jalen Hurts' award. Yeah, the good thing for Jalen Hurts here is that this is a regional award, not a national award. I know Alabama fans don't want to hear this, but people out there on the West Coast aren't necessarily taking in 60 minutes of Crimson Tide football every single week. So they don't get a chance to see what makes Jalen Hurts so special. They just look at the box score and they see, all right, he threw for a buck 85, he ran for 44, what's the big deal? You're right, you have to look beyond the numbers to see how important this guy is. Now, if somebody wants to make a convincing case for a carry-on Johnson and make him the choice, I'm not going to argue. I'm with you. I think he's been sensational. When we came into the season for Auburn, we presumed that they were going to have the best one-two punch at tailback in the league with Johnson and Cameron Petway. I wrote that all offseason. Better than Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle, better than Damian Harris and Bo Scarborough. The best tandem in the league was carry-on Johnson and Cameron Petway. But Petway basically hasn't been there this year. He's been banged up. He was in street clothes, I believe, this past Saturday against Georgia. Johnson all of a sudden is getting 30, 35 touches a game. That was not the forecast going into the year. And he's been a little banged up himself. He's been rarely at 100%, but just keeps on getting better. He's a touchdown machine. He's learned to catch the ball out of the backfield a little more because he has more competent play at quarterback. I think Johnson has been sensational. He should be first-team All-SEC without a doubt. But this is Jalen Hurts' award. He was the best offensive player in the league a year ago as a true freshman. He's been even better as a sophomore. Book it. He's my guy. Yeah, no argument here. I think that both of those candidates are, are legitimate, but this is hurts though would wouldn't that by a hair right now if the season ended today. All right, so let mo- let's move on to defensive player of the year, which is a much more intricate argument. You know, a year ago, the defensive line in particular was really special. The winner was Jonathan Allen from Alabama. He goes on to be a first round pick, but you also had Miles Garrett, number one pick in the draft. You had Derek Barnett at Tennessee, one-man wrecking crew. He was a first-round pick. And you had a lot of other really good defensive linemen, whether it was a Carl Lawson or Auburn or a Charles Harris at Missouri. Really good players, first-round draft picks, guys who are productive. And the D-line is a little thin this year in the SEC. So I think you got to really dig deeper and find the defensive player of the year. And I'm going to the Bayou Bengals. I'm going with Devin White, the linebacker, only a sophomore, but he's the leading tackler in the conference by a long way, not just total tackles, but also solo tackles, which means he doesn't mean a lot of help when he gets a one-on-one opportunity with the ball carrier. Big, big play guy, sure tackler. This is a Bayou Bengals defense that has gotten better for the most part from September through November. He's my choice. Feel free to agree or disagree. I'm going to disagree. I'll go in a different direction. I'm going to go with Jeff Holland and uh, the the job that he's been able to do 
uh, at Auburn as that pass rusher uh, that they need right now in those big-time games, the man they call Sensei Mud, which, I mean, goodness gracious. What a nickname. That's one of the best nicknames. That's one of the best I've ever heard in college football. And, um, you know, this is a guy who has just been tremendous week in, week out for them and just wreaking havoc. This is an Auburn team that just needs to be able to get that pressure on the quarterback to to beat those elite teams. We saw that against Georgia, how big of a factor that Auburn's pass rush played in that game. Holland was tremendous. And I think, um, you know, Auburn, which came into the year, we knew that this defense was going to be good. I don't think we realized it would be this good and look that good against an elite opponent. Holland is just such a big reason for it. I mean, he's he's approaching Auburn's uh, single-season record um, that was set by Nick Fairley back in 2010. Um, I think that this is a guy who just means so much to that team. And, you know, Auburn might be looking at a position where even if it loses that game to Alabama, it still potentially, I think, could get into a New Year's Six game. I think he's just such a big reason why. Um, you know, you can sit here and try and break down numbers and all that stuff. And yeah, he leads the SEC in sacks, and that's important. But um, it's just the presence that he brings on a week-in, week-out basis that, to me, makes him uh, that guy that has just been the game-changer so far in the SEC. Yeah, I think Holland would be my runner-up as well. I guess just coincidentally, I have a couple of Auburn guys runner-up for Offensive and Defensive Player of the Year. I'm with you on Holland. This is a guy who's gotten better, leads the SEC in sacks, leads the SEC in tackles for loss. And you're right, his presence alone in that Georgia game was really, really special. And we saw that maybe this Georgia offensive line isn't as better as we thought it was. Maybe Jake Fromm doesn't deal with the pressure as well as we thought he did. He was really the difference on that defense and changed the outcome of that game because he couldn't be blocked and Jake Fromm had nowhere to go when number four was in his face. So I think he's a fantastic player. And you're right, at times this Auburn defense has been every bit as good as Alabama's. It's been every bit as good as Georgia's. This is a sensational unit. Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator, has done a tremendous job taking over for the one-and-done Will Muschamp. I think Holland is a special player. I don't know if there's another candidate out there. I'm pretty happy with my choice of Devin White. Very good player, very good tackler, only a sophomore, should get better. The funny thing is that I don't know if Alabama has a great candidate for this award. You just assume somebody in that crimson and a white uniform is going to be in contention. Jonathan Allen won a year ago, but nobody along the defensive line has been that dominant. The linebackers have been in and out of the lineup due to injury and the like. Minka Fitzpatrick would have been the guy because he's a corner, he's a safety, he's a nickel guy. He's even a baby backer in the dime package. He is unbelievable and just does everything as a Swiss Army knife. But he's been slowed a little due to injury. The numbers aren't really out there. So I think you have to eliminate him. I think we disagree on the choice, but I do find it odd that Alabama doesn't have a great contender. Yeah, when was the last time that that discussion was had in which an Alabama defensive player wasn't even just part of the conversation? You can make the argument that Fitzpatrick deserves to be in there, not from a statistical standpoint, but just for the reasons that you mentioned, all the different things that he does in that defense, and we could potentially see what Alabama looks like you know, down the road here, uh, if, if, you know, he, if he is able to, if he misses time, um, then that's a, a different conversation. But it's, it's one of those, you know, we see how valuable a guy is when he goes down and what it's like when, when he's not there on the field. So, yeah, I mean, I think Fitzpatrick would be the guy for Alabama. But at the same time, he's, you know, still a significant notch below the two guys that we mentioned. All right, let's move on to special teams player of the year. Last year's winner is back in the league this year. Daniel Carlson, the kicker from Auburn. Nobody doubts that he's unbelievable. One of the best kickers we've seen in college football the last decade or so. Probably going to get drafted in the NFL, which doesn't happen that often. Hopefully this is not a uh, Roberto Aguayo situation and he's traded up for the second round. But He's missed five or six kicks this year. I know most of them are 50-plus, but he has not been absolutely automatic like he has been at times. So I would have a hard time giving it to Carlson two years in a row. I'm going with Christian Kirk. I'm going to wait a little bit to tell you some of the numbers I have on Kirk. I think they're going to blow your mind with some of the research I did this week. But he is positively amazing in the return game. He is my choice. And with limited quarterback play at Texas A&M, he hasn't had a big year catching passes because of the way that offense hasn't been what it has been in the past. But on special teams, he's made up the difference. Do you have another choice in the third phase of the game? 
this is going to be boring, but no, I don't. I think I think it's Kirk's award to lose. I think he changes the game more than any SEC special teams player. I mean, the ability to not only return kicks, but to return punts as well and to be that kind of a threat. Um, there, you just don't have many guys like him who can be, you know, you, you touched on this in the beginning of the season on why he is the SEC's best all-around player. And it's, you know, even on a day in which he, he ends up with, you know, only a couple catches and he really doesn't make his presence felt as a receiver, as the number one receiver, he is still able to take over a game. And that's, that's a rare ability that guys uh, in this era have. And I think that he, you know, for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, I mean, just the, the way that he alters the game from a special team standpoint, he, he's the guy and the numbers, you know, back it up. But I'll let you go with, uh, with some of the numbers on him. The, these numbers are absolutely going to blow your mind. So he had a 90-yard punt return for a touchdown against New Mexico this past Saturday. Yes, it was New Mexico, but punt return touchdowns are a rare animal in today's game. But he only has seven punt return attempts on the entire season. Seven. Because teams are terrified to kick to him. Also, he's not overly aggressive. He calls a ton of fair catches because he values the football. He's not going to put it on the deck. He doesn't fumble. So he waits until he has a clean opportunity. He only has seven attempts all year long. This is a guy who has been the primary punt returner in College Station for three years now. From the second he got to campus, freshman, sophomore, and junior year, he has six punt return touchdowns in his career which is one off the all-time SEC record. But this is where it gets wonky. You're not going to believe this. He has 34 punt returns in his entire career. That's not that many. That's like less than one per game. 34 attempts, he scored six times, which means if the ball's not punted out of bounds or he doesn't call for a fair catch or if it rolls and gets downed at the nine-yard line, if he actually fields and returns the ball, he scores 18% of the time, more than one out of every six, which is stunning. And as you know, I covered the Chicago Bears for a long time. You're a Midwest guy by birth, just like me. I was with the Bears when Devin Hester was there. He is the NFL's all-time leader in punt return touchdowns. He has 14 in his career, but that was an 11-year career. He had 315 attempts. Do the math. He scored Four percent of the time, four, and he was the best that ever did it. Eighteen percent for Christian Kirk is positively inhuman. What this guy does in that phase of the game. Yeah, I agree. And the one thing I'll say, and this is, you know, we could we could probably make an argument like this every year, but I think Debo Samuel would have given him a run for his money. Probably healthy this year. I mean, he is he's going to be the odds-on favorite to win that award next year. I think. Um, assuming he does stick to his word and comes back. Uh, I think he is every bit the game changer in the special teams game that, that Kirk is, but those numbers are just, they're insane. And, and you know, they're, they're not going to get necessarily a lifetime achievement award, uh, but at the same time, just the single season award, it, it, the single season numbers are still, I mean, just off the charts with him. And I think that, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't win that honor this year. Yeah, he has a punt return touchdown and a kick return touchdown. So he's done it in both phases. I know he's the only player in the SEC to do that. And I right. couldn't tell you how many have done it nationally. It's a very short list. I bet you can count them on one hand. So let's move on to freshman of the year. This is another one that sort of seems like a foregone conclusion. Of course, Jalen Hurts won it a year ago. Can a convincing case be made for anybody besides Jake Fromm at Georgia? I don't think so. And I know that after the weekend that was, there are a lot of people that are sort of cool and on from, but you know, the body of work is, is still pretty impressive for him to, to have done what he's done this year, completing 61% of his passes, you know, 9.2 yards per attempt. He's got a four to one touchdown interception ratio. That just doesn't get sacked very often. Was sacked the season high four times this past weekend. Like the guy is, the guy is it. I mean, you're looking at a Georgia team that really hasn't changed a whole lot from year to year, except at the quarterback position. And I'm not saying that that Georgia's turnaround is entirely on Fromm. That would be neglecting, you know, the defense that has looked so much faster and better. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you have to understand that Fromm has been a big part of this, this revival for Georgia this year uh, to come in and, in a spot that he did, getting his first career start at South Bend and to go and win there. 
I mean, the more the season progressed, the more impressive that that debut really looked. And I know there are people who are skeptical about his ability to throw and, and whether or not he can actually, you know, be the guy to lead them back from down 14 points or something like that. But I just think, you know, we talk about the quarterback position and putting a team in position to win. And Fromm has done that week in, week out, with the exception of this past week. So, yeah, to me, there's not been a freshman who has had as big an impact as he had this year. Yeah, I don't think it's even close. Very short conversation. Just go ahead and give it to Jake Fromm. Just peruse through the numbers. I think the leading freshman rusher in the SEC this year is Malik Davis from Florida. I think he's got 500-some yards, and he's now out for the year with an injury. The leading receivers for freshmen, it's the uh, the Smith brothers at South Carolina. Shy and Ortre both have, I believe, 23 catches. If you look at tackles and sacks and tackles for loss and INTs, not a whole lot of guys who've really been special. Uh, now, C.J. Henderson from Florida, I believe he's tied for the league lead with four INTs. Very good player as a freshman, but certainly hasn't had the impact of a Jake Fromm. So I think that's a pretty easy one. Last topic of conversation, coach of the year. Nick Saban won it a year ago, which was interesting. We usually tend to forget about the guy who just goes undefeated almost every season. But I gotta, I'm gotta, i very happy with who I'm going to go with this year. I'd love to hear your choice first. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with the guy that I thought had the award locked up a couple weeks ago, and that's Kirby Smart. Um, and I've made the argument that Kirby Smart, if, I, I think I said it was two weeks ago, that if the voting were today, he'd win National Coach of the Year. So not even just SEC Coach of the Year, but the job that he's been able to do and turning around that program in his second year there has just been tremendous. I mean, he's already taken this program to – uh, heights that many were skeptical it could ever get back to um, in the post-Mark Rick era. So um, I, I just think that he, the job that he's been able to do with that defense, I mean, they have been as close a thing to Alabama as we've seen in the SEC in recent memory through 10 weeks of the season. Now, it depends on how he's able to finish the season and if they're able to uh, kind of get back on track in the final couple weeks here. But at the same time, I mean, how can you not be impressed with the job that he's been able to do um, with a lot of – basically the same team that he had last year. Uh, the Coach of the Year award often comes into, like, which coach surpasses expectations the most. So that's why Saban isn't, you know, necessarily uh, the guy year in, year out. But uh, I think Smart kind of checks both of those boxes, and he has just got that program uh, in a, at a different level right now than many expected it to be at coming into 2017. What say you? Yeah, Smart will probably win. You'll get zero complaint from me, and I think you're right. He'll be in the conversation for National Coach of the Year as well. Hard to argue. If there's one thing in our business that I don't like, it's the intentional contrarian. The guy who disagrees just for the sake of disagreeing and what kind of reaction he can get. But I honestly believe that when I fill out my ballot, I'm going to go with Will Muschamp. And this is a guy who I think has really, really figured things out at South Carolina. It did not go well at Florida. Everybody knows that. But most importantly, the guy who knows that is Will Muschamp. Everyone I've talked to inside this program says he is not the same guy he was three, four, or five years ago, has genuinely learned from his mistakes. And he gets to Columbia before last season. He inherited a three-win team that had completely checked out under the last couple of years with Steve Spurrier. The recruiting wasn't there. There was no, there's just no vigor in that program. He immediately turns it around to six wins and a bold berth last year. I didn't see that coming. And this year, there's a very good chance the Gamecocks are going to finish second in the East, ahead of Florida, ahead of Tennessee, going to go to another very good bowl game. But here's what's very, very impressive. Where exactly are the Gamecocks a great team? Yeah, they got a good quarterback, some good skill guys. There's a couple of defenders you like, but this is the number 11 offense in the SEC. This is the number seven defense in the SEC. But look at the win-loss record. Will Muschamp has this team 5-1 and one in one-score games. That's coaching. He's my vote. Jim McElwain would agree with you that that's coaching, and that, that's what it all Jim McElwain will not get my vote, by the way. <laughs> No, I think you bring up a good point about Muschamp, and that might be off some people's radar right now, but, I mean, he's at least in the conversation. You're exactly right. He's a good example of a guy who could not necessarily he, – he, he's not necessarily built for that big-time program. Uh, he's more built for a program like a South Carolina. We've talked about um, 
you know, the personality fit and being able to withstand some of the, the rigors that come with uh, having to win week out, week in, week out, and look dominant doing it. Um, South Carolina has put together a nice season, and while they haven't necessarily been dominant and they've played down their, to their competition maybe a little bit too much, at the same time, you're sitting there with a, a seven-win team and you're in second place in the division. I think South Carolina fans would have taken that in a heartbeat coming into this season. So I think you're right in that he has been able to do some impressive things there, um, and he's made some good decisions down the stretch late, and that's been the difference in them uh, having this, this successful, nice bounce back year and doing uh, doing some things that maybe we didn't see in, in year two of, of the of Muschamp era. Yeah, I'm feeling good about that one. I had the Gamecocks third in the East this year back at Media Days. A lot of people thought that was way too high on South Carolina. They're going to finish second. I think Muschamp has done a tremendous job. So the, the, the Debo Samuel thing needs to be taken into consideration, too, with, with Muschamp. But, yeah, I mean... Just that, that one final note, I just wanted to make sure that we get in there. Talk about Debo Samuel one time. The other guy hasn't played uh, in a few weeks, but you know, what's the show without mentioning an injured player at least a few times, right? Yeah, yeah, probably their number one playmaker. You lose him early, and you still find a way to probably win eight games and maybe even nine if you find a way to upset Clemson. Very impressive by Coach Muschamp. Let's try this one last time. Connor, great show. We'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Okay, that was Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at SaturdayJC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Crystal and Ticket City. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast is located. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.